welcome to the How the Deal Was Done podcast. This show will feature fast-paced interviews with top sellers. We will hear the hard-earned stories, the challenges, and the learnings they picked up from their biggest and most memorable deals. We hope this podcast will give you a bit of inspiration and understanding for how big deals get done, deals that positively impact your customers, your company, and level up your career as a seller. Let's get started. Welcome to How the Deal Was Done. I'm really excited to be joined here today with Jeff Kerchik. Jeff is from the Boston area, and we recently got connected over LinkedIn. I've actually been following him for a few years. He provides a ton of great resources and uh, content in the Modern Sales Pros Forum. And uh, we had a chance to to speak recently, and, and here he is on the podcast. So welcome, Jeff. Yeah. Hey, Andrew. Thanks for having me. It's uh First of all, thanks for the kind words. You know, I appreciate the, that there's some good nuggets on the Modern Sales Pros Forum, but uh, glad we could connect and look forward to chatting with you today. Great. Well, uh, to get started, why don't you give us a, a quick background on yourself and then we'll dive into the deal. Yeah, sounds good. Um, so my name is Jeff Kerchik. I live in Boston, turning 36 in a few days, um, having a first kid in the next month. So I'm excited about some cool life changes, but I've had a career in software sales for the last you know 13 years or so. I graduated in 2010, and I most of my career, you know, seven and a half, eight years, was at a company called Next Caller. I came in as first employee. It's a Y Combinator company. Led that company seven and a half years later to Pindrop Security. This was back in 2021, and uh, that was right when I wrote a book called Authentic Selling: How to Use the Principles of Sales in Everyday Life, which is a sales book and uh, teaches a lot about authenticity and leaning into what makes you human and the wave of AI. And uh, since then, I've been doing a lot of work with early stage startups, consulting and advisory work. And yeah, that's pretty much a little bit about me. Very cool. So that Y Combinator company, did you move out to the Bay Area or were they were you able to work from uh, the Boston area? Yeah. So I actually, was, um, uh, that, that was a New York City-based company. I lived in New York for, I don't know, seven or eight years when I was working there. The founders went out to San Francisco for Y Combinator. Me and the other uh, individual that were we were hired together, we were back in New York, but we did go out to visit, and uh, we had a place out there for for you know for the company, so got to spend some good time out there as well. Okay, what's your take on uh, on building in the New York area versus in uh, the Bay Area? Yeah, you know, I've noticed a shift in the Bay Area. It feels like a lot of the companies are moving to like the periphery. There's a lot of companies you'll see now in like you know, San Jose or like Palo Alto or like San Mateo or like all these different places, not necessarily like downtown anymore. The city's changed a lot, right? But, you know, building in New York, I mean, both of these cities are just very expensive to find talent. We've seen like this big wave of uh, all these other cities across the US that are really rising in that regard. Boston is actually considered one of like the top tech hubs for like startups right now. Um, Austin, Texas, obviously you see a lot like Nashville, Tennessee, New Orleans, believe it or not, has a lot like a big burgeoning tech scene. Chattanooga, actually, kind of like a somewhat random place, but you're seeing that as well. So, you know, I think it used to be this idea that like San Fran, New York, these were like the only places you could build a tech company. But I think people are dispelling that myth, especially in the age of uh, more remote and distributed work. This podcast is sponsored by OrgChart Hub, helping HubSpot customers get the big deals done since 2018. You can find more about them in the show notes or visit orgcharthub.com slash podcast. That's really interesting. That's 
I've, I've definitely heard of, uh, I was in Austin uh, a couple weeks ago and uh, some of those other markets, but Chattanooga, you're, you're putting them on the map. So uh, shout out to that startup ecosystem. That, that, that is, uh, that's cool. Yeah, for sure. I've never been to Chattanooga, but I've definitely seen some interesting startups coming out of there. A good place to, to build a, a sales hub and engineering, everything. So um, Jeff, why don't, could you set up the, the deal for us that we're going to talk about today? Yeah, let's do it. So when I was at Nextcaller, we sold this uh, tool for call center fraud and authentication. And I'll just lay out the problem for people first so they understand what this product was and who needs it and so on. But there are people that will call into call centers, whether it's their bank or other types of institutions, and they'll commit fraud. They will spoof a phone number. They'll spoof, let's say, your phone number, Andrew, and pretend to be you. So when the call comes in, the institution believes they're speaking with you, but they're actually talking to a criminal who takes your money, and you know that's that. Now, what ends up happening in, in call centers as a result is that contact centers are spending a lot of time and money authenticating every call. So in an effort to prevent what I just described from happening, they will ask you a series of questions. They'll say, you know, Andrew, what's the last four of your social or what's your mother's maiden name or, you know, what's your cat's name or whatever, right? And you'll answer these questions and they, they, you're on your merry way. Now, there's, there's two problems with this. One problem is that criminals know the answers to those questions about 80% of the time because they do their research on you and typically these things are publicly available. It's called knowledge-based authentication questions. But the other problem is that it is time-consuming. You, know, you can imagine if I call my bank and every time I call, I have to spend 30 to 60 seconds authenticating. That's not a great customer experience for me, but it's also expensive for the business because now they're spending 30 to 60 seconds per call doing something they don't need to be doing. And these call centers get sometimes hundreds of millions of calls a year. So you can do the math. You know, if you, if you assume that every second is like a penny for them, 30 to 60 seconds, you know, can be 30 to 60 cents per call, let's say something like that along those lines. And you know, you, you, you multiply that by hundreds of millions, it's an expensive problem. So the story here is actually not with a bank, it's with one of the largest healthcare companies in the planet. It's a very recognizable brand, healthcare company that merged with a retail, very recognizable retail brand that we were selling to. And you know, we originally, so our product does what's called, uh, what we did there was a, is a product that would basically say that the call was coming from the physical device that owned the number. Now, that's a very useful data point for a business to have, but there are other products out there that can do other things as well. They can authentic authenticate you based on your voice. They can authenticate or, or give you a risk profile based on the way that you behave within their voice response system. All this to say that we were solving what could be perceived as a part of an overall larger problem. And so this particular company was engaging with a vendor that had a more holistic solution than the one that I offered. And the aspect of this, like what we offered was the best in class solution in the market, but we ended up not really getting an opportunity to work with this customer because they want, they wanted to build a broader strategic relationship with this other vendor. Now, a lot of people would kind of just say, all right, well, that's tough and they move on. But I kind of didn't really take no for an answer. In fact, what I did was I went out of my way to really befriend the champion who was sponsoring this other product. And we built a personal relationship and friendship over the next couple of years. Okay. And to the point where like, you know, I met his wife, you know, like we, I, we hung out at a, we watched a hockey game together, just generally found like that I enjoyed 
this person as a human and that I think he enjoyed me as a person as well to a point where I think what he realized was that I wasn't, I wasn't out there to sell him something. And I was constantly continuing to add value in terms of like what I was seeing in the market. And like, we would just like stay in touch about what was going on in the industry. And what ended up happening is that this other vendor started to fumble the ball a little bit and they weren't really delivering in certain use cases that were very up our alley. And this person by now was very well educated on what we were good at because anecdotally he would hear me talking about it, not in an effort to sell him, but just because we had built a relationship. Yeah. What ended up happening is that I partnered with the competitor of the incumbent tool to co-sell a joint solution to this customer, because I knew that that was why we were unsuccessful previously. I knew that if we could offer something holistic, that we could, we could give them what they needed. And so this other partner kind of had everything else and we had the other piece that they didn't have. And we were able to work with this partner to essentially say, Hey, let's be friendly to each other in this opportunity. And let's go to them with a game plan that shows them how they can work with us both. And so this necessitated, you know, basically whiteboarding for this customer, how we would integrate with this partner and how we would give them the holistic solution that we could not have given him previously. So the major takeaway here is that the sale doesn't end at no, <laughs> you know, the, the sale continues and the sale is really about the relationship building. It's about constant, constantly providing value and not treating the customer like a transaction. So that's the story. Wow, Jeff, that's a great story of relationships and, and building value over the long, long-term horizon to, uh, to break through. So uh, I'm curious, where was the champion located? Were, were you in the same town? Were they in Boston or where were they? So they were in Phoenix, but they also spent a lot of time in Hartford, which was not too far from me being in New York City. So yeah, uh, I would, I've, I'd seen him out in Phoenix. I'd seen him in Hartford, both places. Okay, nice. And um, yeah, I'm curious. So at the time you were the head of sales, was this opportunity, was it a furball that was always just getting kicked out to the next quarter? Were you getting flack from it from the other executives? How did that look internally? Well, first of all, I love the, the expression furball. I've never heard that before, but as a person with, who owns a cat, I will probably start using that. So thank you. Um, yeah. we, we actually eliminated it. We, we eliminated it from the pipeline entirely until it resurfaced again as a, as a real opportunity, which was when we saw that there was um, a, a pain that had not been solved by the other vendor and that they were open to exploring a different solution. Nice. Good. Uh, that's probably a best practice right there to uh, eliminate the, uh, the questions. Absolutely. Nice. Going forward, do you think there would have been an opportunity in the future to, to make it a two-year or a one-year deal cycle? Or do you think there just wasn't an opportunity until that, that third year? Yeah, I think I did a very bad job in the beginning of the opportunity of really understanding who all of the key stakeholders were and trying to multi-thread across the organization. You know, we 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 had access to a C-level decision maker is where the opportunity actually originated and we lost touch with that individual pretty quickly. I think that was a mistake on our part. I think if we had stayed in touch with multiple stakeholders and champions, we could have been a little bit faster to educate them on like what some of the pitfalls could have been and maybe, you know, this other partner that we ended up working with, like they had been doing that. And so I think if we had shown more of a unified front with that partner, 
across their champions and 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 so on, I think that we could have reduced the sales cycle on this one considerably. Okay. That's a great learning and, and something actionable that the listeners can take is to to partner up and to to make sure you have that executive alignment and executive engagement. And if you don't, then uh, it's probably best to uh, eliminate the opportunity. Exactly. Great. Well, uh, that, that wraps up this episode. Uh, Jeff, I believe you're going to be the, the first multi multi-guest deal story participant. So uh, why don't you point folks to uh, where they can get in touch with you? Sure. Uh, so I'm on LinkedIn, Jeff Karchik. You can find me and you know, link to me or connect me or whatever you, whatever you call it. And I also have a website, jeffkirchick.com. I regularly post blogs on there. I've got interviews on there. I'm writing a new book. It's coming out soon. You'll find info about that there as well. So um, you can find that all on my website. Very cool. Well, we will point them there and put it in the show notes. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Andrew. I'm Andrew Capel. Thank you for tuning in to How the Deal Was Done podcast. Don't miss out on more inspiring stories from top sellers. Subscribe now to stay updated and motivated on your journey in sales.